Listener Production. You tell the story, Victoria. Do we want their power-grabbing pandemic management bill? No! In this episode of The Briefing, we explain Victoria's controversial pandemic bill. This bill is so evil. It is so wrong. Despot Dan wants to become an emperor. Some of the protesters there who've been on the streets for days in Melbourne protesting this bill. There's been some pretty disturbing imagery. A large gallows was towed on a trailer with um, people mocking a hanging of Premier Dan Andrews. But it's not just the fringe lunatics who are opposing this bill. Among some other very respected groups, 60 QCs, so the most senior lawyers you can get, basically, also signed a letter of opposition to the bill. So with the bill set for a vote as early as tonight, we're going to explain what's going on with the Victorian pandemic bill with none other than Annika Smethurst. They talk about overreach. And, you know, you've got to understand in Victoria too, longest lockdown city in the world, there's not a lot of trust. That's our briefing topic in just a moment. It is Thursday, November 18. I'm Tom Tilley. First up, joined by Jan Fran with today's headlines. Good morning. We are starting in Victoria, where the Premier Daniel Andrews has spoken about the violent threats made by protesters to the pandemic bill. There are some people who are threatening me. They're threatening my family. They are essentially uh, attacking the safety of my family. Be really clear and hear this message. I will not be deterred. Yeah, it's pretty concerning stuff. Some of the behaviour in that protest has been absolutely deplorable. And it comes as the Age newspaper reports today that police have charged a man for encouraging protesters to bring firearms to the Victorian State Parliament. And that man's believed to have far-right connections. Now, Tom, you're going to discuss this later with Annika. um, But the vote on the controversial bill, it could happen tonight. There has been, though a fresh blow to Dan Andrews' agenda. So one of his own, uh, well, formerly one of his own, uh, Labor Minister Adam Somurek, um, he is now an independent. He was kicked out of the Labor Party for branch stacking earlier this year. He's come out and he said that he will vote against the bill. Yeah, so he's written a piece in the Herald Sun newspaper in Melbourne saying he won't support the bill in its current form because it gives too much power to the government. This is interesting because losing this vote means that the Victorian government could fall short of the three crossbench votes that it needs to pass the bill. So the government is relying very heavily on crossbenchers like Adam Somurek and it will need to resume negotiations with other independent MPs. And speaking of dangerous protesters, the QAnon shaman, who is the most famous face in the Capitol Hill riots of January 6, has been sentenced to 41 months prison. So that's over three years, almost three and a half years. His real name is Jacob Chansley. He was that guy wearing that horned animal fur headpiece. Another day, it's another development in the renewed search for William Tyrrell. Since yesterday, we've learnt the New South Wales police are now examining a car believed to be his foster grandmother's. And we've also learnt that the AFP have also now joined the search for the three-year-old boy um, who went missing in 2014. This whole uh, tragedy is heartbreaking. And hopefully what we're seeing from the work that our police are doing is that we'll get a breakthrough shortly. 
Yeah, that's the state premier, Dominic Perrottet, speaking yesterday. We're now into day four of this renewed search, which is focusing on very particular patches of land close to the home where William Turrell went missing on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. It's a case that's completely captured Australia's imagination. You know, there's been so much reporting about this, so many documentaries, so many podcasts. It's going to be a real challenge for authorities because it's been seven years and, you know, in that time, no doubt evidence will have been walked on, people lived their lives, things lost. So we'll wait and see what happens. A newborn baby is among the latest COVID cases in the Northern Territory, with warnings the outbreaks in remote communities will get worse. I fear it will take lives in the Territory before the year is out. Please don't let it be your life. The vaccine is your best defence. Yeah, that was Territory Chief Minister Michael Gunner speaking there. So right now there are clusters around the towns of Catherine and the remote Indigenous community of Robinson River. Yesterday it became the NT's largest ever cluster with eight new cases, which brings the total number of infections to 19. Yeah, and there's a three-week-old baby girl among the new cases and authorities are now requiring anyone who's been in those areas um, in the last week to get tested. But this is, I guess, the fear that we've had all along with the pandemic, Mm. that it would get into remote Indigenous communities. So far, we've been relatively lucky, not so lucky in far western New South Wales, but certainly in these really remote parts of the Territory. So this is really concerning. Yeah, and and one of the things that is concerning authorities is um, things like overcrowded housing and also low vaccination rates, particularly among Indigenous communities. So the NT is 71.5% fully vaxxed of eligible citizens, but if you look at the state's Indigenous population, that number drops to 40%, which is really low, and that's why the NT has really been trying to keep COVID out of those communities because it could be a real disaster if it gets in there. And Labor's promising faster internet under an election plan to revamp the national broadband network. High-speed broadband isn't about downloading videos. It's about providing health services to people where they live. That was Labor leader Anthony Albanese speaking there. Yep, really wanting to make fast internet speed an election issue. Now, the opposition is promising to spend $2.4 billion providing fibre to the premises connections to an extra 1.5 million properties. Yeah, so this stretches up an old election issue from 2013. There was a big fight between um, the Tony Abbott-led opposition with Malcolm Turnbull as communication minister against the reinstalled Rudd government. And, you know, Rudd was saying, we're going to tank fibre to the premises for everyone. And the coalition was saying, oh, that's too expensive. We can only tank fibre to the node. So here we are again in what will be a 2022 election fighting over the same thing again. Yeah, and look, there has been some um, sort of costings revealed and the coalition tried to do a bit of a, um, I guess, a more frugal version of Labor's original plan and some of the costings have revealed that the coalition's plan has has blown out almost costing as much as Labor's. So if we just stuck with the original 2012 plan, maybe we'd have faster internet connection and I'd sound better this morning. Britney Spears has spoken out for the first time since she was freed from her 13-year conservatorship, welcoming her new freedom and thanking her fans. I'm just grateful, honestly, for each day and being able to have um, the keys to my car and being able to be independent and feel like a woman and um, owning an ATM card, seeing cash for the first time, being able to buy candles. It's the little things for us women, but it makes a huge difference. I'm grateful for that. You know, it's nice. It's really nice. 
I am genuinely happy for Britney Spears like she's my friend, even though I definitely don't know her. But when I heard that she had finally been released from the conservatorship, I was like, yes, girl. I'm really in her corner. Yeah, it's been amazing. We did a briefing topic on it earlier this week and sort of understood how it all came about, what the key moments were. And we were speculating what she would do next. Would there be a sit-down media interview or would she channel it all into her music or would there be a series of um, messy Instagram posts? So it looks like she might be doing a, an interview with Oprah. She tagged her in her Twitter post yesterday. I don't know if that was reaching out to Oprah or just, you know, hinting that the interview's already lined up. Oh, I, I please God, that's going to be – this is like the Harry and Meghan interview that mm. they did with Oprah. Better. I cleared my diary. <laughs> I'm going to clear my diary for this one, babe. Sweet. All right, Jam, we'll catch you tomorrow. Um, Katrina Blouse is about to join me as we interview Annika about the Victorian pandemic legislation. Annika, great to have you back on such a contentious and interesting bill there in Victoria. So where does this story really start? Why does the government say they need this legislation? Well, look, Tom, they're the first state to do it in Australia, but we've seen that New South Wales has already suggested the current system, which is almost, you'd call it rolling pandemics. It's not fit for purpose anymore. So under the current legislation, and it's been quite controversial that at least in Victoria, the Chief Health Officer, Brett Sutton, can call an emergency or the government say there's a state of emergency and he gets enormous powers to then, you know, make us wear masks, stay in our home. All those things people have really complained about, those infringements on their freedoms and on their rights. And the government actually don't have much say. You know, we don't see the health orders, they don't release them. It really just has to be enforced. And this is, you've got to think, whatever you think of Brett Sutton, he's an unelected official. Whereas if this is on, say, the health minister or on the premier, we can vote him out every four years. They're answerable to parliament. There's a different standard when people are elected officials. So there's been calls for a while now to overhaul this system so that the person that's bringing in these health orders and making us live in a different way are accountable to us. So in many ways, it's fixing a problem. That doesn't mean it's perfect legislation. A lot of people have made that assumption this week that we're being asked to pick between the lesser of two evils. It really might go some way to fixing this problem, but it doesn't address everybody's issues. Do you think it's because the legislation has just gone too far? They talk about overreach. And, you know, you've got to understand in Victoria too, longest lockdown city in the world, there's not a lot of trust. You know, the government is saying, well, we probably won't go into lockdown next year. In fact, you know, we won't. We're living with this vaccinated society and we definitely don't need these laws, but we want them just in case. And it's a really strong argument from the opposition saying, well, if you don't need them, why are you doing it? One of the things that opposition is calling for is a sunset clause, which effectively means these laws expire. They put them on different bills that are needed for certain times. And it means in 18 months, they effectively are no longer needed. It's what the ombudsman down here has also said. If you don't need them, if we're coming out of a pandemic, why use them? Now, if you look at the legislation, it can be used, the state of emergency, not just for pandemics, which we know we might have more of those, but it could be fires or floods or there's a wide range of scenarios where this could be called in. And as we know, prior to the coronavirus pandemic, we really didn't have a lot of examples of it. But I think people are wary, people are mistrusting 
they don't necessarily think that the government won't abuse these powers. And I think that's why we've seen such an outcry. There was also a little bit around of secrecy around this when they started to negotiate with the crossbench. It did seem more like a political deal than, say, trying to bring the public with it because there are good elements of the bill. And then, of course, you've got the overreach. So some of the fines are outrageous. The maximum fine for failing to comply with a health order They've brought it down to about $45,000, but it wasn't $90,000, two years jail for different things. And some of the people that can enforce them, they talk about authorised officers of the government. That could be a Parks Victoria ranger. The problem with the bill is not necessarily the intent, which is often the case. It's some of the detail and rightly so people are upset about it. I don't necessarily agree with everybody out there protesting. I think there's been some disgusting displays, but... Also, there does seem to be a lot of parts of this legislation that sit really uncomfortably with a lot of Victorians Mm. who have suffered so much in the past two years and they rightly want to see it changed. Yeah, I think the range of people who've stood up in opposition to this has been one of the most interesting parts of this story. You've got the fringe elements like the people towing that large gallows on the streets, which is obviously despicable. But then you go right through to some of the most respected people in society, like that large group of concerned QCs. What are those more considered elements (laughs) of those opposition? What are their main concerns? We've had 60 high-profile QCs come out, and I guess their main problem is around the ability under this law to detain people, to find people, vulnerable people. You know, we know that during the last pandemic, these laws are really hard to enforce fairly. Not everybody fits into the category where they can all work at home neatly, teach their kids at home. There's vulnerable people out there and their main point was this isn't fit for purpose for the entire society. And these sort of voices, the Ombudsman's another one, the Equal Opportunities Commission, they just were calling for more transparency. You know, if you're going to give the government these incredible powers to detain and fine and lock people up in the name of public health, what they really want to see is that we know why. We know the reasons why they want to do this and that the penalties fit the crime. And that really hasn't been the case so far. So there's obviously a perception amongst Dan Andrews critics that he's too authoritarian as a leader, but do these laws go much further than what other states are doing? Well, this is the interesting point. They don't go much further than what other states are doing. And in many ways, they improve the system we already had here in Victoria. But I think you hit the nail on the head when you said there's already distrust here. When you've been locked up for so long, people just don't want that scenario playing out again. So Victoria is actually the first state to attempt to replace the sort of rolling state of emergency powers with something a bit more fitting and an attempt to do this. We know that New South Wales have said they're going to follow. It'll be interesting to see if other states have the same backlash, especially those smaller states that didn't have the same levels of restrictions, didn't have the same lockdowns. There is a chance that they might even sail through there without much of a concern. The obvious reason in Victoria politically is, as you say, for that reason, that It comes at a time when people have lived a really bad two years. Now, Daniel Andrews still remains ahead in the polls. Mm. He still is popular down here. If we held an election this weekend, he would win. But I think the mood is shifting a little bit as we exit lockdown. I think the other states will be watching fairly closely because there has been a few indications from state governments that they would like to follow suit and introduce something similar. I don't know whether this might scare them off. 
From the outside looking in, we've seen some pretty hectic protests on the steps of Parliament with effigies and gallows, and it seems quite aggressive. It's got a really sinister undertone. Do you think that's the minority? Do you think that it's fairly small numbers? And do you think that it reflects that the city of Melbourne is really struggling to heal through this? Look, I think it is, and even the government's response has been interesting. We've had protests for months now, and initially... The government was quite critical. They called them fringe dwellers. We saw the city locked down earlier this year because a group of protesters linked to the union movement were standing in the middle of bridges and stopping people being able to get around. And that was over vaccine mandates. There seems to be a combination of people out there now. It is both in anger about the vaccine mandates, but also about these pandemic laws. I saw footage on the weekend and spoke to some of my colleagues who were at the massive rally we saw on Saturday. And there were definitely fringe dwellers. There was people carrying horrendous signs, nooses, pictures of Dan Andrews dressed up as Hitler, which we've seen Liberal MPs call out too. Josh Frydenberg was very critical of that. And I think that is the right approach. We don't want to go down the path, as many people are pointing out, of those ugly demonstrations we saw in Washington. Having said that, I do think if you're looking at the sort of thousands, and we're not talking one or two thousand, we're talking more upwards six, seven thousand people. There are people in there that are just genuinely concerned about what happened in the past two years, and they don't want to see a repeat of that. I think the problem for the opposition is if you align yourself with these people, especially when, as you say, they're bringing gallows into the parliament house, there is a risk that you then become the extreme. You're the fringe. Yeah, if I was in the opposition, I'd probably stand next to the QCs rather than the the protesters on the streets. (laughs) What are the moving parts here? It's still got to get through the upper house. How's this going to play out? It sailed through the lower house, of course, because that's where the Labor government has a majority. These laws, the current ones, expire on December 15. So the government is on a little bit of a timeline. They really want to get it through this week. They used this really unusual move, and I've been covering parliament for a long time, And I'd never seen it where they said, we need to vote on this urgently. I think it's only been eight or nine bills in the history that have ever been in this sort of situation. And they managed to bring it on ahead of everything else and and drop all other government business. What that means is they've allocated three days this week to debating it. We are expecting it to go through Thursday. But look, we have seen late night sittings in both the Upper House in Victoria and in Canberra where MPs are walking around in pyjamas. It could go late into the night, early hours of Friday morning. But they only need three of the crossbench. Labor don't have a majority in the Upper House. They need the support of three crossbenchers. They were negotiating the amendments with them. So you would have to think, given they've put out these amendments at the start of the week, that they're supportive of that and ultimately will get there. If it goes ahead in this form, do you think it will deepen the wounds and the divisions in Victoria or do you think people can just get on with their lives after this? I think Labor won't want to bring it up. I think they'll want to pass this and go into an election year next year talking about trains and infrastructure and not really wanting to remind people of what they've been through for the past two years. A year's a long time in politics and I think um, if they can get this legislation done at the end of this year and go into a new year without lockdowns and without restrictions... I think they might be over to move on. They are ahead in the polls. The last thing they want is this lingering over into summer. Well, that was the voice you know very well, Annika Smethurst, um, who is the state politics reporter for The Age in Melbourne. So that story is 
right on her beat, Katrina. Yeah, it is. And as she said, that legislation could even pass later tonight. It will take some time. They've got so many amendments that they've got to individually vote on, as she said. I just think, Tom, because I'm in Queensland looking at this, it's a bolshy move to pass this legislation when you're a year out from a state election. I think so much water is going to have to go under the bridge for Dan Andrews in the next year. I I know that people's memories are short, but gosh, the trauma of those lockdowns runs so deep for Victorians. Yeah, so you combine that with this legislation, which clearly had some frightening penalties. Um, Also, very broad vaccine mandates have angered a lot of people. So it's understandable there's a fair bit of opposition and it does seem like the city is quite divided. I do think, though, as life gets back to normal, as people have a relatively normal-ish Christmas, Mm -hmm. you've got double dose rates up in the high 80s there in Victoria. I do think some of the and maybe they get this legislation passed, some of the air starts to come out of this balloon and things calm down a little bit over time. Tomorrow on The Briefing, a very interesting update on a story that blew up last year when a group of women were invasively searched in the Doha airport after a baby was found abandoned. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going to speak to one of the women who was searched and find out about the legal action they're taking. Listener.